an inauguration, an airspace violation, Jacobian Russia, and regional inflation. All this and more on today's episode of Southeast Asia Radio. I'm Simon Tranhutis. Today is July 7th, 2022. On today's show... Well, so let me say this. I'm not going to give the whole book away, but I will pull uh, Harry Potter and tell you the last... I think the last word of the book is losing. That was our very own Greg Poling, who has a new book out. It's called On Dangerous Ground, America's Century in the South China Sea. Elena interviews Greg on the United States' historical role in one of the world's most dangerous waterways, and the two combat some misinformation about some in the region's claims, historical, territorial, maritime, and otherwise. First, though, the headlines. Today to help me read the headlines, we have Nikki Arcado in the studio. Nikki is a graduate student at Georgetown University and an intern here with the CSIS Southeast Asia program. Hello, 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 Simon. <laughs> Hi, Nikki. Um, <laughs> so excited to be here. Yeah, me too. Um, we just had lunch before this, so quick plug for the sandwich place compliments only on the other side of DuPont Circle. If uh, any listeners out there are in D.C., Come join us anytime. We'll be probably uh, stuffing our faces. Yes, so. <laughs> absolutely. Order the Crunchy Boy Sammy. It's probably the best one there. Oh, yeah. All right, let's get to it. Nikki, do you want to kick us off? Oh, absolutely. All the news felt pretty big this week, so it's tough to choose where to start. But we'll go with the Philippines first. Ferdinand Bongbong Marcos Jr. was sworn as the 17th president of the Philippines last week. In his inaugural address, he spoke of healing divisions in the country, promised to grow the economy, and lead a more unified, prosperous country. All great things. He also paid tribute to his late father, Ferdinand Marcos, the longtime dictator and kleptocrat who served from the mid-60s until the 80s when he was ousted in a pro-democracy people's power movement. We still don't know much about how the son, Bong Bong, will rule considering he was largely absent from his former roles as both congressman and then senator, but we're getting hints at least on the foreign affairs front with some new cabinet nominations. That's right, Nikki. President Marcos appointed Enrique Manalo last week as the foreign affairs secretary. Uh, Manalo is a career diplomat who has served previously as the Philippine permanent representative to the United Nations, as well as ambassador to the UK, Ireland, Belgium, and Luxembourg. Marcos has said that this administration will have an independent foreign policy. Uh, appointing a career diplomat may send a signal of trying not to antagonize any of the major powers in the region, especially the United States and China. We will see, of course, how that actually plays out, though. And just to build on that, Simon, Marcos appointed former military chief Jose Boy Faustino as the next defense secretary. However, he will have to serve temporarily in a position titled officer in charge due to a rule barring military officers from taking cabinet positions for one year after their retirement. In either case, Boy Faustino will be in the position of having to manage U.S. and China competition while managing decades-long separatist insurgencies. Sounds like a tough balancing act. Some other interesting stories related to regional security both involve Myanmar. Nikki, do you want to kick us off with what happened on the Thai-Myanmar border? Absolutely. So in the time since the coup in February of last year, the Myanmar junta has stepped up the number of military campaigns against ethnic armed organizations. This past week, during one of these campaigns, one of Myanmar's military jets crossed into Thai airspace, sparking the evacuation of several hundred students from a local school. <laughs> and um, 
probably scaring the living bejesus out of the locals, I'm sure. Oh, hey, I would be too. <laughs> the Royal Thai Air Force mobilized two F-16s to respond to the area. And the Myanmar bomber crossed back into Myanmar's airspace. This event happened at the same time as an official Thai military delegation traveled to Naypyidaw for border talks. So how did the Thai government respond to that, Nikki? Uh, pretty well, actually. A Thai military attaché delivered a message to its Myanmar counterpart issuing a warning against future incidents like this. The Myanmar junta issued an apology for the incident, which Thai Prime Minister Prayut Chan-o-cha accepted. Prime Minister Prayut then said that Myanmar and Thailand had good relations and that Thailand has, quote, enough capacity to defend its sovereignty, end quote. I think that's, uh, you know, an interesting counterpiece to Myanmar's attendance at the ASEAN Defense Minister's meeting. Uh, this makes General Mya Thun Woo the highest ranking Myanmar official to attend an ASEAN ministerial meeting since the February 2021 coup. Singapore, the Philippines, Indonesia, and Malaysia urged Cambodia, last year's ASEAN chair, not to include Myanmar in the meeting, but Cambodia decided that it was necessary to project a cohesive message on regional security. Yeah, Simon, this is all very interesting considering past instances of Myanmar junta representatives being disinvited from recent summits, including the recent ASEAN summit in D.C. We will see how ASEAN decides to move forward with engaging the Myanmar junta come the next ASEAN leader summit in November, actually. Ah! Speaking of ASEAN leaders engaging with international aggressors, Simon, what's up with Jokowi's visit to Russia and Ukraine? Right. So um, Indonesian President Joko Widodo, commonly referred to by Indonesians as Jokowi, has sought to become a, quote, communication bridge between Vladimir Putin of Russia and President Volodymyr Zelensky of Ukraine. So last week, Jokowi visited both Russia and Ukraine, both Countries are some of the world's most important wheat and fertilizer exporters, which are resources that are, of course, in dire need right now in Indonesia and around the world and other developing countries ever since Russia invaded Ukraine back in February. The Russian blockade of Ukrainian ports has caused all exports by sea to essentially ground to a halt. Jokowi did manage to extract vague assurances that Russia will not stand in the way of these exports going forward, but Russian officials also immediately blamed Ukraine for being the ones to actually block the ports themselves by placing mines around the ports. In either case, this is an interesting attempt at international conflict mediation by Jokowi, who has in the past been seen as not very interested, frankly, in foreign affairs. But with the war causing food and fuel costs to spike in Indonesia, you can see why he'd want to get involved. Speaking of costs rising around the world, Nikki, I understand that you have an interesting story for us on inflation in neighboring Malaysia. That's right, Simon. Malaysia's finance minister announced a plan a couple of weeks ago to inject $17.6 billion into the economy via subsidies and cash handouts. While Malaysia has managed to keep overall inflation relatively under control compared to some of its other Southeast Asian neighbors, food inflation rose 5.2% from a year earlier, largely again due to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The finance minister said that this stimulus is meant to ease the pain of inflation. Oh, and remember that story we had a month ago on the Malaysian export ban of chicken? Oh, yeah, you mean the... Uh Great Southeast Asian chicken fiasco of 2022. Yeah, I remember. <laughs> right. Well, Malaysia eased the ban on June 13th, but the government has announced plans to cap the price of poultry and eggs next month in an effort to keep food prices in check. 
And those are the headlines. Thank you so much, Nikki, for stopping by. Thanks for having me. Up next, Alina's interview with Greg about his new book, On Dangerous Ground. You won't want to miss it, so stay tuned. Hi again, everyone. I'm Alina Noor with the Asia Society Policy Institute. And as always, I'm joined by my good friend and podcast partner, Greg Poling, Senior Fellow and Director, Southeast Asia Program and the Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative at CSIS. Howdy, Alina. So today, Greg, it'll just be you and me because you have just released your long-awaited book on um, U.S. interests in the South China Sea. So the book is titled On Dangerous Ground, America's Century in the South China Sea. So let's start with that title. You were very kind to have shared the proofs with me. I've read the book. I think the title is a really clever one because it alludes to the two sets of disputes in the South China Sea, which you unpack in your book. And those two sets of disputes are territorial and maritime disputes. So let's talk about why you chose this title, because as people will know from reading the book, and obviously this is a plug to get Greg's book, On Dangerous Ground actually refers to something very specific in the South China Sea. So why'd you go with the title, Greg? Well, thanks, Lena. First of all, all of this is a plug to get people to buy the book. I want to be very transparent about that. Um, I'm sure people are happy that we don't have another guest. We're what they come here for. But obviously, this is all just transparent self-promotion. More seriously, uh, yeah, so the title, I, I went back and forth on the title for a long time, including with the publisher, who wasn't sure why I was calling a book about the South China Sea on dangerous ground instead of on dangerous water. And I hope those who read the first chapter will be reminded that most of the Spratly Islands were uncharted for most of human history. And when the Brits in particular started surveying the Spratly Islands, the area that we would now think of as being part of the Philippine EC and the Malaysian EC, all those tiny reefs and underwater shoals off on the eastern side of the, uh, of the Spratlys were just called the dangerous ground, you know, the equivalent of here there be dragons. And nobody bothered to really think about them or give them names. It was just this giant blank spot on the map that you didn't sail through if you knew it was good for you. All right. And so for those of people in the audience who may not be very up to speed with what's been going on in the South China Sea over the decades, tell us a little bit about what the South China Sea dispute or disputes is or are about. <laughs> a nice Short, simple question uh, that I answer in 300 pages. You know, the premise of the book is that the South China Sea disputes are not new. U.S. interest in the South China Sea disputes are not new, despite historical revisionism from one large party to the dispute. Beijing would have us believe that all of this just kind of came about in the 1960s and 70s because somebody heard that there might be oil and gas in the South China Sea. But the fact is that the territorial disputes, who owns which rock and reef in the Spratly Islands, Paracel Islands, Scarborough or Pratas, those date back to at least the first decade of the 20th century, and U.S. involvement in the disputes, or at least U.S. opinions about the disputes, date back to its earliest days, right? I mean, all of this, in part, derives from the changes in the region at the end of the 19th century that brought the U.S. as a colonizer to the Philippines, France as a colonizer to Indochina, where it started to bandy about these older Vietnamese claims to the Paracels, 
and brought the Japanese as a power in Southeast Asia because of their control over Formosa, now Taiwan, through the Treaty of Shimonoseki in 1896. So the U.S. has been there all along, and its interests have been pretty coherent, consistent all along. It cares about maintaining alliance credibility, uh, whatever that means at the time. Now, I'm happy to get into this, but for most of the century of the disputes, all of the occupants of the Spratleys were simultaneously U.S. allies. So mostly, alliance credibility meant keeping everybody from fighting each other. So the U.S. didn't have to pick sides. And then the second dispute is commitment to freedom of the seas, freedom of navigation, however you want to phrase it. And that's a dispute that goes back to the foundation of the United States as an independent republic. Right. And I think you do a really good job of tracing the disputes back way to the 15th century, I think it is. And you talk about how the European colonial powers essentially had their own self-interest in in keeping the seas open. Talk about the merchant ships and commercial interests back then that were involved. And you go through this book almost in chronological order from kind of the 15th century all the way up to where we are at present. Was this deliberate? It was absolutely deliberate. Now, I, I would argue... Um, that it was the best way to tell the story in a way that's coherent. Because it's, a, as you know, it's an extremely complicated set of disputes. And if you do it by topic or by country, then you have to do these callbacks that I think will get very confusing. Whereas if you keep it chronological, I hope that it's easier for the readers. Now, I'm also self-aware enough to admit that maybe a lot of it was also just my own desire to to go back to my undergrad days as a history major and, and secretly write a history book that I pretend is an international relations book. This isn't a, a boring history book, right? I mean, I love... Well, thank you. <laughs> I love history. So this is a little bit biased, but I think you do a really good job, again, of just setting it out, the history of the disputes in a very appealing manner to, to the audience who might not be so keen on history. And you have these little anecdotes that you pepper throughout the book. And some of those anecdotes that really stood out to me were the ones about individuals and how they really kind of shaped the claims that eventually became a source of contestation between whole countries. Do you want to talk a little bit about one or two of them? Yeah, I'd be happy to. I mean, these disputes, in almost all cases, did not come about because central governments in whichever capital sat down and strategically thought through what's, you know, weighed the benefits and, and costs of, of claiming this rock or this reef. Now, what usually happened is some adventurous entrepreneur, individual, you know, uh, official went out and planted a flag and then drummed up enough nationalism that the home government had to deal with it. So uh, a Japanese businessman named Nishizawa is the first one who claimed the Pratas because he wanted to mine guano and fertilizer to make a buck. And then because of that, started a, a fight between the Qing dynasty and Japan. Then Senator Elpidio Carino, who would later become the president of an independent Philippines, was the first sitting Philippine official to really push this idea of a Philippine claim in Spratly's back in the 30s, and largely drove that for 20 years. And then the most interesting, or at least the one that I think was most enjoyable for the audiences in the Philippines I spoke to last week, is Morton Meads. So Morton Meads has largely been forgotten in the formal histories of the South China Sea dispute. But this guy was a a former American GI who had fought in the Pacific Theater in World War II. As a lot of American GIs did, he stayed on in the Philippines after the the peace and was making his way by selling army surplus, among other things. 
1955, Meads and some co-conspirators, seem to be both American and Filipino, came up with this scheme to bilk local Manileños out of their money by pretending that there was this kingdom of humanity that he said existed out in the Spratly Islands, centered, conveniently enough, on an island called Meads Island that his great-granddaddy, he alleged, had discovered. And, of course, it was all it was all fiction, but they managed to sell some stamps with the Kingdom of Humanity on it and convince people to loan them money for alleged government bonds. Eventually, the Philippine government went out, had a look, realized he was a fraud, and arrested him for mail fraud. And just a few months later, this much more famous adventurer named Tomas Coma, who had certainly read all about Meads in the Manila papers, came out with his own claim to Freedom Land. And Coma gets all of all the, the legacy these days, but he wasn't the first adventurer to go out and, and try to make a buck on behalf of the Philippine government and the Spratlys. I love the names that these individuals picked for you know, the territories, right? Freedom Land and Kingdom of Humanity. I don't know what, did you find out in your research, like what drove them to pick these names? You know, I didn't, but I will say that this is not in the book, but there's a long history, particularly of the last maybe 150 years of scam artists coming up with very elaborate, lofty titles and names for countries that don't exist. And they almost always base them on tiny bits of land out in, out in the high seas based on this idea that they can be claimed as, as terra nullius, as unclaimed land. So th- there's, there's a very long history here. And they almost always, you know, have some ridiculous claim that they're like, the successor to the Knights of Malta or some order of St. John that you've never heard of, or, you know, the kingdom of humanity, which eventually became the kingdom of humanity, Songkrati, Morak. I don't remember. It got eight different names as they elaborated on the fictional history. I guess they think it makes it more believable when they try to convince people to lend them money. Yeah. I'll, I'll keep that in mind when I find a, a bit of terrenalis myself, um, try to come up with something a little more original. <laughs> But I'm really interested in the whole process of your archival and research work leading up to this book, Greg, because there's an incredible amount of detail in the book that certainly doesn't go unnoticed and wouldn't go unnoticed to the reader of this book, I think. Talk us through a little bit about what it took you to get to that level of detail in the book and how long it took you to do all this research work. Well, that's Thanks, Alina. It's, it's nice to hear. I will admit that obviously I'm standing on the shoulders of a lot of other researchers. And while there was the idea behind this when I first started in, in late 2018 involved trips out to the region and interviews, and a lot of that became impossible or harder by early 2020, I'd written about two full chapters and chunks of others when COVID hit. So most of the writing got done from my you know personal office at home and my gym shorts like everybody else during COVID. So a lot of it had to go online. A lot of this work, you'll find people acknowledged in the frontest matter, you know, Bill Hayton's great work on the early uh, history of China's claims. Jay Bhatan Bacall uh, helped point me toward a lot of the early Philippine stuff. Murat Desbitu's book on, on the history of the arbitration. Alex Vu Ving, your former colleague at an APCSS, is the only guy I've ever met who can make sense of the rather complicated history of Vietnamese occupation in the 50s and 60s. So w- without them, this wouldn't have happened. The bits where I was able to add some new research are really the chapters mostly taking part in the 60s and 70s where there's a lot of you know state department cables and and nsc minutes and the like that have been declassified since 
and that are available in online databases now, where I was able to do the research amid COVID that I otherwise wouldn't have. And then a lot of the new stuff, frankly, is just that I've been spending way too much time worried about the South China Sea for the last decade of my career. So, you know, I was maybe uniquely well-placed to kind of spitball the last couple of chapters, last three chapters, I guess, on the Obama and Trump administrations. Yeah. And again, to plug the book, if you haven't already figured this out, like Greg's details span a number of countries, right? From Philippines to, to Vietnam to the US, obviously. And so I was just really blown away by the specificities of you know, the cables that you, you picked up on, but also just very casual analogies and, and anecdotes that you threw in there. So kudos to you. But I want to pick up on the Philippines and Vietnam because the book goes into great detail about those two countries and a little bit about Taiwan as well as a claimant. Not so much about some of the other claimants in the disputes. Why is that? All right. So I explicitly wanted to write this as a corrective to what I think has been a very heavy weighting in the historiography toward Chinese sources and China's narratives here, to the point that you know Bill Hayton, among others, and, and uh, Chris Chung have, have done great work on this. <laughs> There's been a lot of intentional rewriting of history since the 80s and 90s by Chinese academics that have then filtered into both the English language and the Southeast Asian language academic research on the South China Sea as accepted dogma. And people have to you know, drill down on the footnotes to realize that all of them are quoting the same two or three Chinese sources from the 80s and 90s. So a lot of this was about going back to the U.S. and the Philippine and the Vietnamese sources to help provide the other side of those early histories. And as I make clear in both the intro and conclusion, I don't think you can tell the story of why the U.S. cares about the South China Sea without telling the story of the evolution of the U.S. alliance network, which in particular means the U.S.-Philippine alliance. So obviously I'm going to lean into the Philippine story more than the non-Americans would who wrote it because the Philippine story is partially the American story in the South China Sea. So why not uh, Malaysia, as I assume you, you want to know? Well, there's a fair amount of Malaysia in there on the international law chapters because Malaysia was first, you know, Federation Malaya and then Independent Malaysia was there in the negotiations for Uncles 1, Uncles 2, Uncles 3, as were all of the Southeast Asian parties. When it comes to disputes themselves, I welcome other uh, research, but I struggle to find any clear Malaysian statement of interest in the Set Spratly Islands until the mid to late 1970s as Malaysia prepared to claim its condo shelf. So there's just not as much history there. The Philippine and Vietnamese claims predate modern international law. The Malaysian claims are a result of the regime established in 1979. And Brunei, I admit, doesn't get enough credit um, in the book. I've only got a handful of anecdotes, but to be fair, Brunei has very explicitly not wanted to get involved. Right, we'll get to the US really quickly because that's obviously a large part of your book, but did you look into kind of local language sources in researching these countries' claims? So I had to rely on on other researchers here. I mean, I speak bad Chinese and no Malay or Vietnamese. And and so I could do a fair bit of the early U.S. and Philippine research, of course, with it being in, in English, and then had to look to colleagues who had done translations and, and archival research in the old ROC archives or in Vietnamese uh, language. 
A lot of the Vietnamese stuff, the official stuff, has been translated into English over the decades because Hanoi has an interest in making sure it's out there. And a lot of it was translated previously, particularly the old Arvin sources, and then kind of forgotten. So, But I, I can't claim that I was able to go into you know, old archives from Saigon. I, I don't have any Vietnamese that would allow me to do it. Well, I mean, it's, it's great work nonetheless. You start off the book with the question, has the U.S. lost the South China Sea? And you try to answer that question at the very end of your book. I don't want to give the whole book away. I don't know if you want to do that, but you offer some recommendations as well. Can you kind of give us a teaser on what those recommendations might be? Well, so let me say this. I'm not going to give the whole book away, but I will pull uh, Harry Potter and tell you the last, I think the last word of the book is losing. <laughs> so the, the U.S. is not lost, but the U.S. is clearly losing the South China Sea in as much as its interests are limited to defense of its alliance credibility to the Philippines and defense of freedom of the seas. Those two things are being lost steadily. I argue in the book and in the conclusion that we're headed toward one of three futures in, in the South China Sea. The changes that China has wrought through its island building campaign and its naval modernization and so on for the last decade have the region on a glide path to a future in which the South China Sea is effectively a Chinese lake. And if that comes to pass, you know, the U.S. Navy and, and extra-regional navies might occasionally sail through, but Southeast Asian civilians are going to be unable to access their own waters, in which case China's already won, UNCLOS is dead in Asia, and, and arguably unwinds globally, and the U.S. alliance to the Philippines eventually crumbles. Future two would be a conflict in which the U.S., with allies trying to prevent that, accidentally uh, sparks a conflict or China accidentally sparks a conflict and neither side wants that. So the only future worth aiming for is, is option three in which a combination of reestablishing deterrence in the short term with the Philippines in particular buys enough time for a long-term strategy of diplomatic and economic cost imposition to bring China around to compromise. And, and I think what this would look like would be effectively treating China the way you would any other rogue state in this situation, the way you would uh, Russia or an Iran or North Korea, so that the international community, largely acting as bad cop, incentivizes China to actually compromise with the Southeast Asians, whether it's through the ASEAN China Code of Conduct process, which I'm highly skeptical of, or more likely some other parallel negotiations. But that's going to take, you know, 10 years, 15 years. I, I don't know. What I do know is that we don't really have 10 or 15 years right now unless you can do something in the short term to help beef up Southeast Asian capabilities and buy some time. So I get asked this question a lot, Greg, you know, what do Southeast Asians expect the U.S. to do right in the South China Sea? I'm going to flip it right back to you and ask you what you think Southeast Asian claimant states or even the other ASEAN states collectively could do better to help out with managing slash resolving the South China Sea disputes. From an American perspective, the Philippines has to be seen as that's key to this, right? It's the only one that has a mutual defense obligation. It's the one most intimately connected to all the reasons that the U.S. cares about the South China Sea. So a lot of, of U.S. concern has to be on, on how Manila has or has not handled its business in the South China Sea over the course of the Duterte presidency, a lot of which is, is the focus of the last chapter of the book. I think what the U.S. wants to see, what the U.S. needs to see, is the alliance deepen and evolve and mature in basically the ways all the other U.S. alliances in the region have since the end of the Cold War. The Philippine alliance has really been left behind as a one-way alliance that's just not sustainable in 2022. 
which means, yes, the U.S. has to do a whole lot more for the Philippines, including supporting the armed forces of the Philippines modernization. But the Philippines also has to do a whole lot more. The Philippines needs to understand that an equitable alliance, as they keep saying they want, is a two-way street. And the reason that the U.S.-Japan alliance or the U.S.-Rock alliance, the U.S.-Australia alliance is so stable these days is because those countries have made themselves as important to the U.S. as the U.S. is to them. The Philippines needs to find ways to do the same. Beyond that, we need to see all the claimants, but probably starting with the Philippines and Vietnam, be more willing to talk about their disputes in public. We're well beyond the days where quiet ASEAN diplomacy and private notes verbal are going to do anything to change Beijing's behavior. Public naming and shaming is going to have to be part of this because the only way that Beijing is ever going to decide that it's worth compromising is if it comes to believe that its behavior in the region is undermining its goals globally to to be a leader. And that's where China is really different than, say, Russia. There is some leverage here because China does want to lead. It doesn't just want to be a spoiler. But none of that works if the Philippines or Vietnam or Malaysia put their heads down and refuse to talk about it in public. So you've kind of put the burden on um, Manila. Prospects under the Marcos administration for that? I'm cautiously optimistic. We're now one day, when, as of recording, into the Marcos administration. It'll be one week when people listen to this. I expect that there will be some outreach to Beijing. Every president can kind of be expected to do this right. Everybody thinks they're smarter than the last guy. And, and if the last guy had just done something different, then China would have, would have been willing to deal. The Marcos government will find the same thing the Duterte government did, that Manila has no leverage here, and there's no reason for China to deal. And so China won't. There, there won't be any compromises. In the meantime, I expect policy to be far more consistent than it was under Duterte. So wherever, whichever way Marcos leans, we can at least expect him to lean that way consistently, not you know 2 a.m. angry pronouncements that you can't predict as we got for six years under Duterte. Plus, so far he's staffing his government with sound, capable bureaucrats, the new Secretary of Foreign Affairs, Enrique Manalo, is a lifelong bureaucrat who's worked the ASEAN portfolio and the U.S. portfolio and the U.K. portfolio for years. The new Secretary of National Defense is former AFP Chief of Staff, who's reportedly close to to outgoing Secretary Lorenzana. I think we'll get a fair bit of consistency. And consistency over the last year or two means working to rebuild the U.S.-Philippine alliance. All right, Greg, tell us where we can get your book. As of today, or as of last Friday for those listening, you can get it on Kindle. And hopefully pre-orders will start shipping by the second week of July in the U.S., and it'll be widely available by the second or third week. But, you know, all of this is supply chain dependent. I can't guarantee that Oxford won't call me tomorrow and say the world's run out of paper. Great. We um, look forward to more of your work. This is a fantastic book. Congratulations, Greg. Thank you so much, Alina. Thanks, everybody. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of Southeast Asia Radio. Feel free to write us with any comments, questions, or feedback at searadio at csis.org, and we will be sure to answer any questions that you all might have for us. We're still new on the podcast scene, so do us a favor and subscribe and give us a rating on iTunes or Spotify or whatever streaming platform you listen to us on. Tell your friends about us, too. Laurel Vibitson is our producer, our interns are Hazen Williams and Nikki Arcado. Our co-hosts today were Greg Poling and Alina Noor. My name is Simon Tranhutis. And I'm Nikki Arcado. And 
We'll see you in a couple weeks for another episode of Southeast Asia Radio. 